Hey, Aaron, have you ever ridden solo through Yemen? Yemen? Yeah, I mean, dude, you know, my wife doesn't even let me go to Target alone. Well, our guest today, Mike Glover, he's ridden solo through Yemen. Wait till you hear what he has to say about his time in the field. Shall we uh, head into the briefing room? Let's do it. Mr. Mike Glover, you're quite a well-known guy in the industry. We're very excited to have you as our first guest here on the podcast. Yeah, it's an honor and pleasure. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I, I always think uh, great companies like you guys should have podcasts, and it's kind of cool to be the first guest. That's a rarity. Well, you've made quite a name for yourself in the industry, but there are going to be some listeners that don't quite know you, your background, or what Fieldcraft does. Would you mind giving the the little elevator pitch on on all of those? Like many in the industry that are especially out front teaching, I have a military background, spent many years in special operations. Then I started contracting for the Central Intelligence Agency, did that for a few years, and in a 2015-16 timeframe, decided I wanted to start a company and started a company on survival, which is the modern take of survival and preparing citizens, military, law enforcement, really anybody who's willing to listen for the worst case scenarios. So uh, own that company and we teach six to eight courses a weekend throughout the nation. We'll teach 10,000 people this year alone. We have products, we have content, um, we're all over the place. Yeah, it's it's uh, been a long road, but in the industry for sure. In the past 10 years, you know, if you look back 10 years ago, there were a lot of companies and one of the most famous ones for training wise was Magpul Dynamics, right? And they always focused, a lot of their focus was mainly on the gunfighting portion of things. And Fieldcraft was one of the first companies that really took a unique approach at it. Now you have a lot of companies that are doing a lot of their focus on the medical side of things, on the survival side of things. What was it that made you passionate about what you guys focus on opposed to every other company that's really just doing a lot of mainly gunfighting portions. Yeah, it's, that's interesting because I, I started the company and I didn't want to be a tactical instructor because our backgrounds, that's an easy transition to teach on a flat range. But I grew up on a flat range, you know, training all over the world. So I was not disinterested, but I knew that preparedness was very diversified. You had to do a lot of things. When I started training citizens or civilians, I was criticized at first because guys were like, well, why are you training civilians? Like you should be training mill or LEO. And I said, I'm training self-defense, which is very different than counterterrorism operations. I'm not, I'm not training them on how to conduct raids and ambushes. I'm training them on how to defend their lives. And the argument was typically squashed when I said, hey, what do we do overseas to empower people? We train them. We provide support, that by, with, and through methodology, and we build culture. And that culture transitions into people's lives where they're able to protect themselves, their families, their community, and by proxy, their, their country. So for me, out of the gate, that was what we were doing. And what I've seen, which I think is a very positive thing, is a lot of the tactical guys decide, hey, man, this is a, not only a viable market, but there's a lot of purpose there. There's a lot of passion there. And civilians are now starting to see more companies step up to train survival, to train mindset, situational awareness, all these diversified things that are in the field of preparedness. What are some of the, the biggest things that you learned in the Army 
that you wish civilians knew? And I'm sure those are some of your biggest topics for your field craft courses. You know, growing up in the infantry and the army is a very different experience than most services. And, and I don't think civilians understand that. You know, if you're if you grow up in the Navy and you become an E7, for example, I mean, you're a god. The army experience I had was growing up in the army, every single whether it was like an E1 private that was in the the squad or the team, every single person had a responsibility to continue the mission no matter what happens. So the idea came from Vietnam, most certainly, where you have platoons of infantry that were getting uh, in, in the wood line, losing the leadership. And then guys, E1s, E2s, E3s, lower enlisted guys had to pick up uh, that mission and continue it. So for me, going to ranger school at 18 years old, I rapidly and quickly learned how to plan and how to conduct this process of the military decision-making process. And that allowed me to think about contingencies, about how things come together to meet the desired objective or end state. And so that transitions into life, into business, uh, into preparedness, into tactics. So what I wish civilians knew more of, which is basic processes from troop leading procedures to five paragraph operations orders to contingency-based planning. Just the simplicity of uh, even understanding a five-paragraph ranger doctrine uh, operations order, you could translate and transition into business. My business plan was written via the military decision-making process, which is very robust and very detailed. And I know other companies like Evan Hager, Black Rifle Coffee, I've seen his business plan. It was written like somebody would, like a private would write in ranger school on their right in the rain notebook, an entire plan that they've flawlessly executed. I know for a lot of instructors, one of the biggest things that gives them like that rewarding sense of feeling from going out and teaching people are when you hear back from your students, hey, Mike, something you taught me in class, it saved my life or it saved me in, and my family in this scenario. Have you had any great feedback from any of your students for how your curriculum has helped them in their real life? Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's, that's the affirmation that we get daily here at Philcraft HQ of people saving their lives, saving somebody else's life, using situation awareness tactics that we taught to get them out of a bad situation. That happens routinely in the feedback OODA loop that we have uh, of training. One of the concepts and ideas that I had from the very beginning, because it's kind of ingrained in my DNA, is we will never come from a position of power in trying to influence the students that we're trying to teach. It's a shared collaborative effort of learning. So we take a lot of the lessons that we learn that we get routinely in every single class and implement change in a very fluid and adaptive period of instruction. So we're never regimented or constrained to one way of thinking and doctrine, which allows us to think about adapting in every circumstance because there might be a better way. There might be a civilian uh, in your collaborative effort, in your feedback that says, hey, I just saw this happen and, and this was different. And we include those teaching points. So we're never conforming to convention. I think convention breeds complacency in a lot of, a lot of ways. So yeah, the positive affirmation that we get is a indication for me that we're doing the right things. But for me, it's never good enough. We, we always have the room to evolve and adapt and grow and learn as a company and as trainers, especially. 
That's huge. I love hearing that. You know, traditionally in the past, there were a lot of instructors that took that mentality of, hey, this is, we know it and we're the experts and you're not going to teach us anything. Thinking about that, what are some of the common misconceptions or, or myths that you hear for students that maybe they, they would expect something going into a field graph course, but a common misconception for those people that don't know it as well as they should? Yeah, great question. I think uh, most certainly people are intimidated because of some of the guys' backgrounds, including my own. Uh, for people who have trained with me, they immediately understand right out the gate that there's no ego involved in, in this process. I also think that people in the tactical industry has, have overcomplicated this thing called gunfighting. What I mean is you have institutions, because of safety constraints, they have limited our ability to do realistic training. And in that created this doctrine or this protocol that doesn't work in real circumstances and I think is compromising and potentially a liability to officers, military, and even civilians' lives. So a great example of that would be the idea that specifically you're going to find your front sight in a gunfight. I used to talk about that all the time because from my own experiences of killing bad guys in war in close proximity, uh, the first guy I ever killed in combat was hiding behind a door. My barrel was touching his chest and all of the adopted training, even in special operations at the highest levels, where you're going to manage to find your red dot. Now, there's a right answer, right? You could train to the standard, but then you have to train to reality. And so if you're training to a standard and the standard is find the red dot to break your shots clean, that's one element of training that's fundamentally important. But the other side to that is you got to be able to see what you can get away with. So when you take a shooter, for example, uh, I could take a 10-year-old girl. And I could say, hey, here's a gun. If you pull the trigger, it goes boom. You hit the steel target 10 yards out in front of you. That's the objective. I don't give her a lot of constraints. I don't give her fundamentals of marksmanship. I don't overwhelm her. And she accomplishes that objective. So I should build off that base because I said, hey, point the gun at the target and pull the trigger. Don't overcomplicate that. Let's get through this. And she hits it and she hits the still. We do it again. She hits the still. We're confirming our bias that, hey, maybe she's not doing this because it's luck. I should build off that base. Instead, I say, hey, I want you to consciously at the same time do seven to eight or seven to nine different things, depending on your school you come from and fundamentals of marksmanship. And then I expect the same result, except she's overwhelmed. She, she breaks a shot, she misses. And then I'm like, hey, for 99.99, I can get you in the next course where we'll build up your skill sets and focus on front side focus or stance or breathing. And I think that's the detriment of this legacy group of people, institutions, instructors that I grew up in where we're not willing to adopt change based on real world experiences. And so if you sign up for a course, understand you have to have basic gun handling skills. We expect you to be safe. We expect you to handle a firearm safely on the range like an adult. But after that, we're reverting back your training and we're making it primal, almost ancestral at a level to where it's very easy for you to comprehend and I see the light bulbs going off all the time where people are like, man, I thought we were going to ninja school. It's like, no, man, there's no ninja school. There's only the mastering of the fundamentals and the basics. And, and that's what will make you a ninja. So I think primarily that's the biggest concern we have is this stuff's not hard. We're not a bunch of egotistical special operations guys. There, there are all those guys out there. And we want to make and create a environment that people are willing to, to learn uh, that's comfortable for people. That's really interesting, Mike. One thing that I think you said there, and it was really interesting, is the story of 
the young person handling a firearm for the first time or going out and, and getting that training, you know, for people that are, are like yourselves, a lot of the times we think of their post-career special operations or special forces, but we don't often think of how they got there. Can you give us a little understanding of, of your background growing up? Did you always have this preparedness mindset or is that something you learned along the way via the military? Give us some ideas of, of where you started from. Yeah, I, I want to lie to you and say like a lot of people pretend like this is something that you could be bred into, but you have to have the willingness, the motivation to volunteer to go into this in the first place. And that came from my origin story as a kid. I mean, I grew up in a, a military home, like a lot of military families that serve, they grow up in that household. They see their dad in fatigues. They're listening to the same verbiage. They're watching the movies. They grow up in the culture. At a very young age, I played army until I was playing it for real. And for me, even planning, I, I used to plan operations and raids and ambushes against my, my playmates. I don't think the kids do that anymore. They do it on Call of Duty. But I grew up in that environment. And for me, the only objective that I wanted to accomplish was joining the military and being in special operations. And so I did so at a, a very young age as a 17-year-old. I think a lot of people in military service, especially who are willing to be all they could be, have opportunities to grow, to learn. And I became a leader, not because of my natural leadership capabilities, but because the military trained me and gave me the opportunity to excel as a leader. So a lot of my experiences derive from that. And what's interesting is a lot of the things that I teach or a lot of the things my guys teach, you know, we got 20 subcontracted tactical instructors. A lot of the things that we teach as a brand, as a company, derive from my experiences as a GRS guy. They didn't derive from my experiences necessarily as a, a special operations guy. I mean, special operations guys think low vis is like putting a shemog around your face and you know putting a, your AK-47 underneath your man dress. That's not low vis. So a lot of the things I learned, especially with a pistol, how to react and respond in an environment where you're semi-permissive stems from GRS experience. And what I tell civilians all the time is you live in a semi-permissive environment. You live in an environment where everything's safe until it's not. And so in a semi-permissive environment, which is one of the most dangerous, you can get easily complacent because of the routine, because it's 99% routine. And then that 1% of your life that's filled with trauma, accidents, self-defense, whatever it may be, you have to be prepared for. So that balance came from my Jairus contracting experience where I was mind blown that I didn't have a platoon of Rangers on QRF to come rescue us. It was just me, another guy riding shotgun, and that's how civilians roll. It's you, you are your own first response. And so, yeah, th there's a, a few segments of my life that kind of transition into what's known as Philcraft survival today. That was actually going to be one of our questions was what surprised you the most when you left the army and started contracting, you know, with OGA? Was that it? The fact that you had to step up and you were your own backup? You were, it was just you and one other person potentially, and that was it? Well, there, there's a couple, a couple specific moments where I was taken back. One at, at my vetting where we go to get trained and we go to vet, basically establishing that everything we said on a resume is true. They're just validating the resume. It's funny because I remember one of the guys who showed up and they issued us night vision and lasers. And we had a period of time to get our guns up zeroed and ready for the next validation. One of the guys is like, hey, are you gonna, are they gonna show us how to put this stuff on? 
And the instructor was like, oh, no, bro. Like, we don't teach you anything here. You, all you're doing right now is validating that everything that you said on your resume is true. And so if I'm handing you night vision and a laser, you've already ran that and you should know. And he was like, oh, crap. We helped him navigate that because he just wasn't an experienced guy that way. But when the first time we did CQB, they dumped us into a warehouse to go rescue uh, a case officer. And they did so by yourself and said, here's a carbine. Here's a Sims scenario. Go in and do it. And I remember walking into the hallway and then going, oh, my God. Like CQB is a collective task. The reason it's so impactful and optimized for performance is because it's a collective task of like-minded individuals using standard operating procedures to attack problem sets. So you only have a small sliver of the pie. CQB is like one of the easiest things to do with your mates, except nobody tells you how to do single man CQB because if you do single man CQB, you've done something wrong. Like if you're standing at a threshold, you yell support and, and you don't enter a room by yourself. Well, for anybody who's been to war, you know, that's not the case. You just make things happen because you have to adapt to change. So I remember going in that scenario and going, oh my God, it's only me. And they taught us single man CQB tactics. And I went, man, I wish I had this 15 years ago. And the most surprising thing for me in that job was the latitude we had, which I wasn't used to. I mean, you got to submit a 15 page document in a con op to get approved to do a route recce. But we were doing some crazy stuff where I was even uncomfortable. And I'm known as that guy who's like, let's, let's just do this. Let's just saddle up and do this. So I gained a new found respect for the contractors that serve this country. And they've been doing it when I was riding on Little Birds and MH60s with my buddies with 10 aircraft stacked on top of us providing close air support. They were doing it by themselves. So that whole paradigm made me for the first time look at myself, look at my everyday carry, look at my bag, look at my kit and go, it's all on me. And that, that new dependency uh, and cutting the umbilical cord is what created the idea for Fieldcraft Survival, but also how we teach, which I think is a testament to, to your brand, your company. Look, Vertex makes civilian-esque looking bags that have capability. They're bags that fit in any environment where all the capability is internal or could be on the outside, but it's, it's all massed and reduced in signature. That's so important for civilians to understand it and to know. And I never knew this world existed, uh, even of EDC and the civilian aspect of it, until I went to GRS where I went, hey man, can I get that Vertex bag to deploy with? I should start looking at my own habits as a civilian. Again, I wish I had all of those tidbits prior to me starting my special operations journey. Yeah, I don't know that a lot of people realize that transition or the the seamless transition from GRS tasks where you're a, a one-man CQB team and what that means for a civilian. You know, if Aaron has a, a bump in the night at his house, I'm sure a lot of those skills are very seamlessly transitioned from one to another. Yeah, for sure, man. The idea that everything I was doing in GRS was like what that undercover police officer or that soccer mom or, you know, or the, the average person could be potentially faced with kind of changed the ideas that I had in everything, even in business. Like, man, why, why is there no company teaching civilians how to be better prepared 
when crime st- statistics are flying through the roof? Why is nobody focused on first aid training and collaborating that into tactical training? Because if you pull a gun, there's going to be casualties on either side. So why is nobody focused on stop the bleed? So it, it definitely was an eye-opening experience and then made it an opportunity for me creatively to go, oh, wow, there's a world that exists that's similar to the civilian world. And I'm going to transition a lot of those or a lot of that expertise over to the civilian side. And again, it didn't derive from 7-8 or doing raids with Task Force 16. It derived from, you know, rolling solo in Yemen, where the nearest QRF was two hours away via helicopter. So I'm going to be that guy and ask you uh, specific questions for your EDC or in your truck. You have, I'm assuming, a pistol on you, a knife on you, a flashlight on you, and maybe a gun. What do you have for like your go-to pistol and what do you have for your go-to, um, what I'm assuming is a carbine, but for long gun? Yeah, good question. I, I Look, I advocate for both. And I, I think it's important to make a distinction between the pistol that you carry and the the carbine or a larger bore caliber round that has more energy and foot pounds and more muzzle velocity. The reason I make the, the clear distinction is because let's start with the truck gun. If you have a truck gun, it's because you're defending life from potentially inside or around your vehicle. So the idea of just depending on that pistol, I'm not buying into that because I know what the ballistic, the external ballistics are on a 9 mil, 40 or 45 through a car door or through a windshield. And I want to be able to punch through that obstacle and affect the target. And, you know, in my circumstance, I might be fighting through the door and I want that to affect the the potential target or threat that's on the outside of that door. So for me, uh, I use a BCM, uh, a Bravo company manufacturing 300 blackout collapsed. Um, I'm running an eight inch barrel with a tactical law tactical folder. Uh, you got I have that in your gamut bag that's front passenger readily accessible. And and again, I make the distinction because I've been in hostile circumstances in GRS where I need ready access and I need it now. So that's why we advocate for access to your tourniquet and your visor, your mobility bag on your the back of your uh, seat, or the the carbine or the AR pistol in your gamut that's co-located with in range of your arm to be able to defend and protect. For the pistol, I've carried a Glock my entire special operations career. I, I was in special operations when we transitioned into Glock 19s, Glock 17s, Glock 22s, Glock 34s or 35s. So I'm a fan of Glock, but I always had an issue with Glock. And that is, I have abnormally large hands for, I'm a 6'1", but my hands are abnormally large. At 16, I could palm a basketball, uh, NBA basketball, and I was probably 5'8 at the time. So when I put my support hand on the side of a pistol, the support side of a, a Glock, any model, I'm pinning the slide catch. And that induces malfunctions, basically, things that I don't want to happen, like inten- unintentionally locking the slide to the rear or not locking the slide to, to the rear when I run out of bullets in a slide lock. So I have just transitioned over to SIG, which took me years to convince me. One of the reasons I switched to SIG is because all my special operations buddies, including uh, Dan Horner, who's an a AMU guy, he's a pro shooter, Lena, the whole crew have done a lot of engineering development on these pistols. And I think personally, they're the best pistols I've ever shot out the box. So I have a SIG P365XL, no red dot optics. So I haven't adopted that yet. And I have a 
SIG P320 X carry. That's a little, obviously a little bit more large in the form factor that I carry depending on what I'm wearing. If I'm wearing this particular setup, it's a 320X carry because I have enough real estate to reduce my printing uh, with that pistol. So big fan of SIG, big fan of BCM, and and big fan of both uh, for responsible citizens to carry every day. It's really interesting. Yeah. One thing that that we talk a lot about is is making sure not only do you have the right firearm, but a lot of the, you talked about the apparel and the gear that go along with it. You know, do you guys talk about that with some of the folks that you're training that, you know, the material and in, in the the firearms that you're handling is important, but the way that you conceal it, the way that you are prepared and the fact that you can grab it quickly or access it quickly is also important. Give us a little insight of, of how you train that with your folks as well. Yeah, a great question. Uh, I'm wearing your pants right now. I'm paying attention from head to toe of like a lot of people fall into the hashtag EDC and it means pistol. It means carrying a pistol. It's like the pocket dump, the pistol in my hand with my my keys or my my surefire light. Everyday carry for me is everything that I wear from head to toe. People ask me, why do I wear a hat all the time? Well, I grew up in the military where you didn't go outside unless you have a patrol cap on. I also have uh, gnarly Asian hair and I, I refuse to put product in it, but it's branding opportunities, but it's also concealing or masking my eyes so you'll never catch me without polarized sunglasses and a ball cap. You'll never catch me typically without a button shirt. Well, Mike, you seem to always wear button shirts. Well, the reason I wear button shirts is because one, I could present myself professionally, but I wear untucked button shirts so I could ready access my pistol and I don't want to print. So that's why I don't wear t-shirts because I carry every day. I wear you guys' pants because the functionality and utility of it. I mean, I'm a fat kid and... You know, I need pants that stretch, uh, but I also need the utility in it. Look, when I was in GRS, I remember I was in Yemen and one of my TLs came to me and he goes, hey, Mike, we're not allowed to wear flip-flops. And I had flip-flops on. And I'm like, why? I'm off duty. I'm not, I'm not working. I'm not doing a run. Like, what's going on? And he walks me over to the wall and he peeks over the wall and there's a school. It's actually an academy. And he goes, last rotation, we had a vehicle-borne IED that detonated here. And at this particular location, you are your own first response and you have to be able to fight for your life and the lives of everybody you're responsible for. So I looked at my feet and go, dude, I have never thought about that in my life. So now I make a conscious decision, even if I'm putting cowboy boots on, like I wear cowboy boots and cowboy hats. Well, if I, if I put cowboy boots on, they're likely Justin boots because they have uh, tactile soles that can grip and they're actually kind of like work boots that I can move in. Because slick boots anywhere here in this environment is not going to work and try to uh, contest or contend and defending your life. So what I would do is for anybody who's listening to this, I would start assessing consciously what you wear every single day. One, it's fun because you're, you're, you're living consciously, but you get to make cool kit decisions about your attire. You could convince the spouse to buy all, all this cool, sexy stuff, but all of that stuff is necessary in optimizing your position in life. You wear the right stuff every day. Not only are you prepared, but you're building the confidence. And, and even as a risk mitigation tactic, it are looking like the guy that you don't want to mess with. And when I see a dude who's squared away, he's got a nice watch, he's got a proper attire that fits, it's utility, uh, utilitarian and functional. I go, I don't want to mess with that dude. It's sloppy, the junk wagon that's going to be exploited because he's not squared away. So the extension to that is the things that we carry. 
which is again, you know, defaulting to, to vertex and all the everyday carry considerations. Those things can blend in your environment, but they extend your capability because you're extending the capacity in which you could harness your capability. So if I have a tourniquet on my person in my waistband, then I'll have a basic hemorrhage response kit, a stop the bleed kit in my vertex back. I think all of that is living the culture and the lifestyle of being prepared. Look, I don't think this is a hobby. I think this is a lifestyle and it's important that people adopt inclusive and holistic everything that's included. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that all the time and you'll see with even, you talked about our vertex pants, but between our jeans, some of our more khaki style pants, even our shorts, you'll find you have almost the exact same setup no matter the styling of the pants. So you can blend into those various different environments, but still have your exact same kit. So if something happens in an emergency, you're not trying to figure out where you put your med kit that day or where you put your tourniquet. It's easy to grab. Speaking in kind of those terms and in that mindset, what would be like for the novice, the person that's never even thought about preparedness before, what's the very first thing you would teach somebody? Is it make sure you have a med kit on it at all times? Is it teaching them how to use a tourniquet? What would be that number one easiest thing to do just to start that process? Yeah. If you're talking about trying to live your prep life, I want to default to kit because Kid is sexy, but honestly, it's a conversation. It's, it's a Q&A. What I've realized in teaching civilians across the United States is uh, even military guys have this problem. There's a huge discrepancy between what I think and what I'm actually capable of. A good scenario is if I tell people, uh, like in my everyday carry prep class, uh, we do a scenario that's called deadly force. And I have everybody standing up. And I say, listen, I'm going to walk you through a scenario. I'm going to give you information. When you hear that information, at the point in which you decide in your head that you're going to use deadly force, I want you to sit on your butt. And that's your commitment. I don't want you to look at me. In fact, I want you to turn around and sit on your butt because you're committed. Your life has changed at that moment. And so the scenario is home defense, walk into the living room, see a guy in the darkness, and somebody turns and sits. I'm like, okay, let's continue. Uh, the person continues to move and you see in their right hand, they have, a, they have a pistol. It looks like a pistol. And then somebody turns and sits. And then I go, and then as they're uh, entering the middle of the living room, they're going to go down a hallway and your kids are in that hallway. And then the last two people turn and sit. And then I say, okay. And then you go to turn on the lights and it's your neighbor's kid who's 15 years old, who's returning back your son's airsoft pistol because he didn't want to get in trouble. And then everybody's like, well, you, you tricked us. And I said, well, what's the trick? Well, you didn't give us enough information. I said, okay, so let me allow you to understand one of the elements that you're forgetting about, which is stress. If you're not realizing that this situation is going to be stressful, you're also not realizing that you're partitioning a captions of what you're seeing and observing uh, at eight millimeter, not in 4K. Then you'll hear, oh, well, that scenario wouldn't have played out that way because I wouldn't have did that. And then I also said, you are not in charge of your own scenario when you're reacting to a threat. You could be in your bed and open your eyes and there's a gun in your face because you, you're not in control. So the situation that I'm putting you in, you could default it any way you want. But what I'm letting you know is that we don't understand how this works because we've never asked ourselves the question. So it starts with a, a, a Q&A at a dinner table. It's like, honey, what would you do if somebody kicked in the door? Well, I'd beat them up. What if they had a gun? Well, you know me, I'll take care of things. No, no, no. I mean, like literally, what would you do? 
oh, well, I'd get my gun. Well, honey, your gun's in the lockbox in the safe in the bedroom. Oh, well, was the front door locked? Right. I, I need to start using these conversations to distill and figure out what my weaknesses are. And then I could take corrective action in creating the plan. When that's the start point, then people start identifying all the flaws in their life. They don't have a fire safety plan. They don't carry EDC. They don't know what to do in a vehicle accident. They don't know what to do in a, a second story fire where their kids are up top and they're at the bottom. That's the conversation that needs to be had. That's how we start this whole process of going, oh, Maybe I should start paying attention to this idea of being better prepared. There's a portion of our uh, podcast that we want to try with you. It's called the lightning round. And we're going to ask you some pretty rapid fire questions. And we just need you to throw out an answer. Shoot from the hip. It's going to be as fast as possible. We've got four questions here. Are you ready for it? Okay. All right, Mike Glover, you're going to be the first victim of our lightning round. I'm ready. Born ready. What are three pieces of gear that you always want with you? Everyday carry pistol and a magnet retention holster, a surefire light of some kind separated from your pistol, and either a Cat 7 North American Rescue Tourniquet or TAC Med Solutions, a soft tee wide on your physical person at all times. Flashlight, tourniquet, everyday carry pistol, but specifically those tourniquets, quality tourniquet. If you were on a desert island, what book, music, or movie do you absolutely have with you? Um, I'm going to have my Audible and I'm going to have the Audible version of Jack Carr's book series, Terminalist, starting with Terminalist, uh, ending with Devil's Hand, hoping that he's somewhere off the island writing the next book so I can get the download. What's the absolute best concert you've ever been to? The best concert ever? Kid Rock opening for Aerosmith back in the 90s. Man, it was sick. Dream On, you know that song Dream On? They did that in the rain. They walked through the crowd and got into the grass in the rain with all of the audience that was displaced from it. And it was it was sick, man. It was awesome. That answer will be hard to beat throughout the series <laughs> of this podcast. All right. Last one. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? Ooh, probably the craziest thing that's ever happened to me is being in two significant earthquakes in Pakistan a decade apart. The first one killed over 2,000 people was right off the X of that on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the second one killed hundreds of people. And I was in Pakistan and Islamabad when that happened. But I've never been in a, an earthquake ever. And the two ones I have been were both from the same country uh, a decade apart. Wow. That's pretty intense. <laughs> well, we can't thank you enough for being a, a guest on the podcast. We appreciate you. We appreciate your service. We appreciate everything you do with Fieldcraft Survival to enable us in the civilian community and you know our LEO and, and mill partners that are out there um, in the world. And thank you for for being a continued supporter for Vertex and our products. We we absolutely appreciate you so much. Absolutely, Mike. Where can people go to find more about you and your company? Yeah, th thanks guys for having me on the podcast. It's uh, Philcraft Survival on everything, right? It's Philcraft Survival, Instagram, YouTube, podcast. Uh, what I would encourage people to do is just before you even sign up for a course or buy a product, go and check out the free resources for information. I started my podcast, which has over 300 episodes now, talking into my iPhone on my my notes memo and my PJs, which you've you know, come a long way since then. So that resource is absolutely free. You can go everywhere all over the internet to get that. And I appreciate all the support that you guys have offered me graciously. It's always 
humbling to be represented in such a way that's positive by companies that are out there doing good for the greater good, uh, which I think Vertex and a slight few others on one hand, I can count them, that are having the impact that you guys are having, especially on civilian, with civilians, military and law enforcement. So thank, thanks so much. So Aaron, what did we learn in that interview with Mike Glover? Well, number one, the EDC should be from head to toe, not just the weapon system you're carrying. Number two is there's no ninja school, which is news to me. Um, you have to master the basics. For the record, I would be a phenomenal ninja, especially if they love 5'8 fat ninjas. I'm, I'm their guy. And then three, you are your own first response. So you have to be prepared. And then last but not least, if Mike Glover invites you to Pakistan, there's probably a pretty good probability there's going to be an earthquake. So just be ready for that. Well said. And thank you all for joining the Vertex Briefing Room. Make sure you check out the show notes at vertex.com slash podcasts and like, subscribe, and give us a review. Feel free to drop us a line and let us know what topics and experts you would like to hear about on future episodes. Where are you going, Aaron? Target. You need anything? You better call your wife first. <laughs> Ain't that the truth.